what we're developing at Living Undeterred is a platform that we think is going to be the nation's first individualized personal mental health planning service, similar to the financial planning industry. We're hoping to get this thing designed and implemented in the next six months, have it available free to kids so kids can learn the idea behind having a balanced quality of life. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Jeffrey Johnston, founder and president of Choices Network and the founder of Living Undeterred. On October 4th, 2016, the trajectory of Jeff's life changed with one phone call. Prior to that day, Jeff was living the American dream. He had a great family, was a successful entrepreneur, and was coasting through life. That morning, Jeff received the call that is every parent's worst nightmare. His oldest son, Seth, had died from fentanyl poisoning at the age of 23. Jeff soon realized he had two options. He could go down a road of anger and despair and become bitter, or he can use his situation as motivation to become better. And he chose the latter. Jeff decided to take a step back from his career as a financial advisor and focus his attention towards making a difference. Jeff became an advocate for bringing awareness to substance use and addiction in teens and young adults. He began speaking at high schools and community events and joined the board of a local treatment facility that Seth spent time at before his death. In 2020, Jeff founded his own nonprofit, Choices Network, dedicated to educating kids, parents, teachers, and coaches on the importance of making positive choices. That same year, he wrote his first book, This One's For You, an inspirational journey through addiction, death, and meaning, and started the Living Undeterred Project. And in 2021, the project got even more personal for Jeff when he lost his wife, Prudence, to alcoholism. Jeff just completed a 95-day trip across the U.S. to talk to people about mental health and substance use disorders. Listen in for some great takeaways about Jeff's journey of turning tragedy into a mission to better himself and help other families avoid the events that he has experienced. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the pleasure of being with Jeffrey Johnston, founder and president of Choices Network and the founder of Living Undeterred. Welcome to the show, Jeff. I'm excited to be here, Larry. I know you and I have a lot to talk about. Certainly so many issues out there with mental health and quality of life and improving well-being. So I'm super excited to be on your show. I thank you for taking out the time for doing this. As we've said on many occasions, having conversations like these are what's going to lower the stigma, allow people to come out of the darkness and seek the help and the guidance that they need, and hopefully not have 
the same end result that your family and my family have experienced as a result of mental health. So before we kind of get into that, so our listeners have an understanding of who you are, I, I know a big passion of yours is your involvement in starting and founding Living Undeterred. So can you share, because I think this will give a lot of background and color in terms of why you're here and why we're talking to you. Can you, you share your why for starting? Starting living undeterred. Yeah, I have a quote that I start all my talks off with. Is this quote that I think embodies really the mindset? Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. So you say that a few times. Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And most people that have have something they're really excited about in their life, or they're living with an intentional purpose and meaning. It's due to some reactive mode that kicks in when some event happens, whether your wife gets breast cancer or someone in your family takes their own life by suicide or overdose. And then all of a sudden you're an advocate. And I think that's heroic, but I'm trying to get people to have the mindset as maybe we can become advocates prior to these events happening. That why do we wait for something to happen? And then all of a sudden we become passionate, especially with children and, and adolescents. I'm trying to get them to find a passion prior to the tragedy or the trauma instead of waiting. That's one little side note that we can talk about later. But for me, Larry, I don't know where to start because it's kind of a complicated story. But I do want to say one thing before we start. I think it's really important for people that are working through whatever they're working through that we get hesitant to compare grief. Because I think what people do is they hear a story and they think either my story's worse or my story's not as compelling. So I don't have a right to feel as bad. And the reality is, if your only trauma in your life is your cat was put down last week, then then that's just as strong as the trauma that I went through or that you went through. So it's one thing I need to kind of set that table right there that people need to be hesitant when they hear my story to try to compare because we all have unique stories to us. Some are absolutely horrendous and horrific, which I can share some that I met on my tour this summer. And then some, uh, like I said, are, are just wouldn't seem like that big a deal, but for some people they are. So it's important. It's all relative. We, yeah, we put it in context. So sure. for me, Larry, I'm 56 and age 50, I had reached the summit, the pinnacle of life. I owned my own investment company. I had nine advisors, seven full-time staff. We managed around 700 million. I was uh, on cruise control. I uh, started the company. I was 23. I uh, had a TV show, have a radio show, radio show. Just really felt like I took it to where I wanted to take it. You know, married my wife, Prudence, three boys. Seth was our oldest, Ian, middle, and Roman's the youngest. So you're kind of sitting there at 50 going, wow, okay, now where am I going to retire? How am I going to retire? How can I transition the business? You know, you know, all the thoughts you have when you hit that midlife opportunistic stage of someone's life. Well, like life does for all of us, eventually we get curveballs thrown at us. And on October 4, 2016, like any other day, the anniversary is coming up. I got the call that every parent dreads. It's the call that you become a member of a club you can't leave and one you certainly didn't ask to join. Our oldest son, Seth, was found dead in a hotel room, needle in his arm, heroin laced with fentanyl. That moment, everything froze for me, but felt like a thousand years simultaneously. It's a weird dynamic. And I, in my book, I talk a lot about that day. I, I have to set the plate or set the table in regards to context so people can see kind of the lens I view life from and uh, where my passion comes from. But that day, everything changed. Everything just hit me full right in the face. And what happened was that I knew I had to tell my wife, first of all, that our son was dead. And that was 
as you can imagine, at age 23, that, that's a very horrendous conversation. But I also knew I had to tell my two other boys that their older brother was dead. And so the day that he died, I sat my two boys down when they came home. Ian had a golf tournament that day and Roman was getting off the bus. They were 15 and 13, Larry. And if you know much about bereavement, losing a sibling is the number one most difficult thing for adolescents to go through. More than losing a parent is losing Mm -hmm. a sibling. Because the expectation isn't that they should pass first. Right. And they've been robbed of growing up with an older brother. You know, I I watch my wife go through it with, you know, the loss of my brother-in-law. Yeah, I know your story, too, and my condolences. Yeah. Same to you on Seth and Prudence, for that matter. Yeah, unfortunately, brother, you and I, there's too many of us out there that are the survivors, the collateral damage, as we say. So I sat the boys down on the couch, and I said, I got some really bad news. Your brother's dead. You could just kind of see how that went. And at 15 and 13, I think they were just perplexed, like maybe this is a joke, Dad, you know. But then Ian immediately, my middle son, said, how'd he die, Dad? Drugs? You see, see Larry, he knew. He knew that this was the end of a six-year journey that started with Adderall back when Seth was 15, 16 for attention deficit, which is a whole nother thing we can get going on. And I said, yeah, drugs. And then I had that moment where I kind of paused where I thought, all right, man, this is it. You know, you, <laughs> it's pretty important what you say next. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, this kind of dictates the framework of the rest of your life as a family unit. Do I show fear? Do I buckle or do I show strength and courage? something just kind of clicked in me and I I didn't rehearse this. I actually dreaded this moment because I had like five hours of prep before the boys got home. And I just said, you know, boys, we have one of two roads to go down. We have a road of inspiration and despair and hatred and we'll become alcoholics and addicts ourselves. Or we have a road of inspiration and motivation. And this can be the single greatest moment in our lives and those around us to make a difference. I'm on the second road. I ask you to join me. And Larry, I swear it went off that easy, that authentic, that genuine I'm not sure where it came from, but it really worked because my two boys have been absolutely amazing. They've done some heroic things at that age instead of using this as an excuse to unravel. But for my wife and I, it didn't go down that well. The next 14 months, we drank heavily. And I was an alcoholic since eighth grade, by the way, which was one of the cracks in our family from the perception of the community. Here's a successful financial advisor that's nice car, nice house, travels the world. But the reality was I was an alcoholic and I also had a gambling addiction for about 20 years in my 30s and 40s. So those are two things you don't put on your U4, you know? Right, right. I think that that lesson, that conversation, however you want to frame it, when you sat down your boys and said that basically we're at this fork in the road, I think that's something very similar to where I was when we lost my brother-in-law. I was like, hey, we can either kind of acknowledge this and, and move on, or we can use this as an agent for change. And what do you think others who are listening today who might be in a similar path, maybe they took the opposite fork to you and I and kind of went down the wrong road initially, I would like to to think that they can make a switch and kind of go on on the opposite road and and talk about going on that road of hope and inspiration, as you say. What do you think others can learn from this message, whether they're at a point where they've had this experience already or a similar or some type of experience of loss or they haven't already? What can others take away from that? Because I think it's powerful. There's a ton of different ways to answer that question that this journey's kind of put me on that. Death came into my life as an opportunity to become a better man, not a bitter man. And that's the mindset of the living undeterred mindset is, do things happen to you or do things happen for you? How do you view events in your life? 
most of us, things happen to us and we react. My wife and I, for 14 months after Seth died, we drank. You know, I went from five days a week to seven. Told my staff I'm not coming in for a year. I never came back. I haven't seen a client in three years. I haven't retired. I haven't sold the company. That part of my life died that day. And I tried to come back. I tried to get into the the swing of that. And I just, the whole money part didn't interest me anymore. So, but for 14 months we drank. And finally on December 24th, 2017, I realized I needed to quit. I looked in the mirror and I said, that's it, man. You're done. I haven't had a drop since. I don't keep track of days. I don't call myself sober because that implies I'm in a fight. I'm not that smart, but I'm pragmatic and I have attention deficit. So when I want to do something, I do it. I don't overthink it. I just don't drink alcohol. I don't have to torture myself with meetings and and play the games that we do. I'm, I'm a stoic philosopher. That goes back to college days. So I've always thought of stoicism and kind of how they reframed things. So going back to your question, what can the average person do? Well, they can learn the benefit of the value of reframing. That's a powerful tool, how you look at events in your life. And through meditation, I really learned to not take ownership of a lot of my thoughts. So I don't I don't identify with negative and guilty things that come into my brain. I literally watch them die just as quickly as they came into my head. And so there's tricks. There's there's ways we can do things to learn to evolve. I've got three pillars of what I call the living undeterred mindset that I talk about when I give my presentations and my second book I'm working on called Living Undeterred Better Not Bitter. I went back and I thought, well, why am I this way? I'm I'm not I don't feel like I'm that special, Larry. I really don't. I just feel like I'm a dad from Iowa. I look at things a little bit differently, but anyone out there listening to your show has the capabilities and the abilities to learn these very simple techniques that I've kind of developed over the years that really helped me build my financial services company up too. being resilient, being in the business. How many no's you take compared to how many yeses? (laughs) You've got to be a little stubborn. You got to have that unwavering confidence that what you're doing is working. The key thing of that whole sentence I said, Larry, was the ending. I ask you to join me. I wasn't going to tell my boys what to do. I was going to show them. But again, it took 14 months. I didn't want to live, but I didn't want to die. It's a weird dynamic when you're stuck in purgatory like that. I, 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 I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave my house. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to think. So, I mean, what do you think, your honesty about your alcohol consumption after Seth's death, and I think you've gone on record about knowing how long it would take you to get your your gun, right? I know that honesty about you sharing it will save other lives. So, what do you think was the catalyst for you that made you pivot from that low point to getting on this right direction? Because it sounds like even though you were making those mentions to your other boys in that moment— you yourself weren't necessarily on board at that moment. It took you several months, you know, over a year, it sounds like, to get on that. So what do you think was the catalyst to really make that pivot from that low point to say, hey, I got to get on this bandwagon too? Well, I was 52 at the time when I stopped drinking. I was getting tired. Your body gets a little sore. Your mind isn't as sharp. I knew I had two boys wide-eyed looking at me thinking, you know, they just lost their brother. Their mom and their dad are drunk every day. I just had that epiphany moment. I really don't know if there was a specific genesis to this other than just looking in the mirror. The one person you can't lie to is the face in the mirror. And I love that. I love that mindset. And I could lie to everyone else around me. But if I look in that mirror and look back, I can't lie to that person. And so I just knew it was time for me to quit. We all have that 
moment. When you make a pivot in your life, you just, something happens. But the real, real reason I quit was to help my wife because her alcoholism was getting much worse than mine. I mean, she was physically changing, couldn't sleep. It got really toxic environment. And, you know, the two boys were witnessing this. So they're probably thinking, well, is this how adults should deal with their problems? I quit to really support my wife. That's what it really came down to. And then it found out for me, it was easy to quit. I didn't struggle with it. So I just continued not to drink. But on June 29th of 2021, my wife died from alcohol abuse due to bearing a child. And I can't put it any other way. She was the most amazing woman I could have married. She was the best mom for my kids. I know. I know it's tough. And I I appreciate you sharing, again, not only Seth's story, but Prudence as well, because I know that what you're doing and what you're talking about is helping others today, helping others since his passing, and will help countless others going forward. And I know when we lost my brother-in-law, Keith, I had no idea, no idea, zero idea of the staggering statistics about mental health and let alone suicide, right? And different, but somewhat similar in some veins as well. And like you said, it's all relative at the beginning, right? Those two events in my life, going seeing what my brother-in-law went through and learning about the statistics and everything around mental health, those were really surrounding my motivation. It's kind of like what you said earlier, Purpose becomes passion when it becomes personal. And that's what really, it was for me. It became personal. I lost my brother-in-law and that really was my dying motivation to help educate others, to kind of impart upon others to make sure that they didn't go through what my family experienced. Is that really your why? Is that really your purpose at this point in terms of your passion behind this, in terms of trying to alleviate others from experiencing this as well and having that open and honest conversation so they talk about it before it gets to that point? I'll be brutally honest with you, Larry. This is for me. This is not for other people. If I'm dead, then other people I can't help. So I have to help myself first. So for me, for selfish reasons, everything I do is my therapy. It's my way for self-care. My podcast I do, the book I wrote, our tour around the United States for 95 days this summer, all this funded with my own money. I got very little support financially from corporations and some individuals were great, but most of this was my own. Each day I get into these projects, I get further into this. I know I'm helping people. I get, you wouldn't believe the, the amount of emails and texts and calls I get from people, random people that I've helped. But at the end of the day, I have to do this for Jeff Johnston. I have to, I have to do this for my self-care because what good am I to my boys if I'm a train wreck, if I'm drunk, if I'm, if I'm not here. So yeah, I mean, I think that's important. I'm helping people, but that's, it sounds selfish, but I'm being real honest with you. I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this for Jeff Johnston because it's like on the airplane when you have the turbulence and this is very old. Everyone's heard this story, but they don't tell you to put the mask on your kids first. This is what I'm doing. This is my oxygen mask right now. What my projects, but when my wife died, I had already had my book out for two years. I already had my podcast for a year. I already purchased the RV for the Living Undeterred U.S. Tour. You know, I had all that going. And when my wife's death happened, that just really gave me that extra shot of adrenaline that this is it, man. This this is, I was almost liberated in a way from that caretaker mode I had been in. I know people may 
take some things I say wrong, but I'm an honest, authentic person. And I just kind of say it the way I feel. I think when she died, it opened the doors for me to really do what I wanted to do and in her honor. And so I got this quote that I have in my studio down here. It says, honor the dead, live for the living. So how you honor the dead is living an intentional life, leaning into all these things. Death to me now twice has been an opportunity to become a better human. Do I have my bad moments? Yeah, man. Over Christmas. Everybody does, right? My first brush with suicide was last Christmas. This is after my book, after my podcast, after I bought the, I mean, and it's stunning to think that in a matter of seconds, I went from Mr. Living Undeterred to what people perceive me being bulletproof to knowing it would get me seven and a half, eight seconds to get to my safe and get my gun and end my life. And that just happened less than a year ago. It's a great lesson in taking shortcuts and how dangerous they can be. I took shortcuts in my healing. That was my lesson I learned from this eye-opening experience. Fortunately, I didn't make that decision, but there's a lot of people like your, you said your brother, right? Or brother-in-law. My brother-in-law. Yeah. Listen, I don't know that it's even, you might disagree with me. I don't even know that it's a conscious decision that's being made I don't in know that either. moment one way or another. Right. You know, right. it's just, it's a moment of vulnerability. Some planet, some planet yeah. for a long time. Others, it's impulsive. I, it's, it's, yeah, yeah I and, don't know. And, yeah. I mean, everybody's different. And my feeling about it is that there's no difference between you and I or me and anybody else. We can be thrown the same events, facts, and circumstances, but our minds and the way we handle it and the way we process it could be completely different and we may end up getting a different result. So I'm glad that whether unconsciously or consciously you made that decision that you did and and didn't go ahead with it. All I could say is if you ever need help or somebody to talk to, I'm here for you because I'll talk to anybody who's in a bad spot or a good spot. It's always easy to have the good conversations. It's the difficult ones that people tend to shy away from and I have no problem uh, having those tough conversations. I want to ask you something because the purpose becomes a passion when it becomes personal is something that really resonates with me. And I agree with you. I would love to be able to put people in a position, especially instilling this in young people to start figuring out a passion. You know, we could look at Simon Sinek, finding your why and things like that and, and finding their passion. I think it's all tied together. What are your suggestions? Do you have a couple of takeaways that if I'm a parent or I'm just an individual and I don't want to wait for that purpose to become a passion, what are some key takeaways that I can take to start trying to locate and identify with a passion that I can start working to before I have a purpose for it, if, if that makes sense? It does make sense. It's a great question. I'm not sure if there actually is an answer. I think the way I look at that question is we all have something that we we really like. They always say, if you really love what you do, it's not a job, right? I mean, it's, I five years ago could care less about mental health. You know, I was your typical financial advisor, just really distracted by things that at the time I thought were important. And then something like death comes into my life and all of a sudden I got my purpose and passion revealed at that moment. So how do we get someone to find it prior to an event like that that happens? That's a great question. I would look at what you really like to do. What are some of the things you really like to do? Do you, do you like to tell stories? I, mean, I like to tell stories. People say, well, Jeff, are you a motivational speaker? Are you a life coach? I'm like, no, I, you know more about this stuff than I'll, you forgot more than I'll probably ever know. I, I'm literally just a dad from Iowa, but I'm an active learner. I like to listen to things that I'm against. In other words, I don't like echo chamber concepts of validating my thoughts all the time. So I really like to read books that are counter to 
my belief structure. I think I'm fairly open-minded, so I'm studying psychedelic research and brave wake technology, all these things that are out there that are on the fringe of mental health. I'm tired of people dying. That's my passion. 800 a day die from overdose, suicide, and alcohol. I'm tired of that. And you know what? A lot of it is preventable and highly predictable. It's unnecessary. And some of it's tragic. I get that. But I'd say the majority of it was stuff that if you could intervene before the intervention, we could crush these numbers, crush these numbers. And so at Living Undeterred, what we're doing right now is we're designing programs for adolescents to literally intervene before the intervention, empower them, show them ways that they can make better decisions under difficult situations, how they can self-assess what stage they're in when it comes to their ability for risk response patterns, we call it. We all have them. We all have our own ways we deal with things and how we approach risk, low benefit, high risk behavior, high benefit, low risk behavior, things like that. The psychology part of mental health has really interested me. In college, I had a finance degree, but I had a minor in psychology. And you know, as a financial advisor, Larry, we use psychology much more than numbers and statistics. Our relationships we have with money was really a driving influence in building my wealth management firm. People like Daniel Crosby, who I've had him on my show. He's actually, he's quoted in my book. I love Daniel Crosby. I really love that dynamic between the financial services industry and how people deal with their mental health. What we're developing at Living Undeterred is a platform that we think is going to be the nation's first individualized personal mental health planning service, similar to the financial planning industry. We're hoping to get this thing designed and implemented in the next six months, have it available free to kids so kids can learn the idea behind having a balanced quality of life, what mental health really is, but put it in adolescent terms. So I'm not sure if that's back to your question, but what happened to me was my passion was revealed through an event. How you find passion prior to an event is a good question. I don't know how to answer that, but I think keep looking. I think just keep doing things that you like to do and trying to figure out ways for me, helping other people is the most therapeutic an honorable and humbling thing I can do. Yeah. A true altruism. Listen, I feel the same way. I, people ask me all the time and they're enamored by the amount of money that we've raised for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and the amount of people that have helped us do that. And I always say that the thing I am most proud about is I know for a fact because people have called us and we've helped them and guided them in the right direction that we've saved lives. And that to me, as you can imagine, trumps any type of money that we ever raised or any kind of advocacy we ever did. That is unbelievable. So I know you have the Living Undeterred podcast. You've had that for a while now. What is something that you've learned from the podcast itself? I would imagine, I know you said you're doing it for your own kind of well-being, but have there been a couple of major takeaways that you're saying, hey, well, this is really something that's keeping me motivated to continue doing this Hmm. that you've learned? It's a great question. And I'll answer that by saying this. We did our tour around the United States. I bought an RV, took my kids, documentary crew, thought, you know, we go around the country, get a pulse of what mental health is like around the United States. And what I learned, it was the most eye-opening revelation, Larry. Now I look at people and I see a story. So I see Larry. I see a story. I don't see a man with a beard and a purple shirt and doing a podcast. I don't even see a man. I don't even see a white man. I see a story. And the tour really 
hit that home. I had strangers at campsites coming up that in every state, in the rain, in the sun, at night, in the morning, at gas stations, at Walmarts, when we pulled in the RV to load up on supplies, our RV, I called it the mental health magnet. And what I learned was that raising awareness on these issues is a dead horse. That ship has sailed. It's not working. Every statistic across the board. We know what fentanyl is, but more people are dying. We have less prescription opioids on the market, but the deaths are up 100%. They're, they've tripled. So raising awareness isn't working. I'm not sure it ever worked. So what do we do? We want to bring attention to. There's a psychological difference in the approach. Raising awareness is in your face. I could have had a picture of my son and my wife on my RV. I could have made this whole thing about my son and my wife everywhere I went. Obviously, I had to tell the story to paint the context of where I view life from. But this is a we narrative, not a me, me narrative. And for me, sharing stories, opening up the door of vulnerability, or as Johan Hari says, connectivity is the key, the antithesis of addiction. That door opened, that, I, that crack I opened, the floodgates came in, man. I mean, I, I was hugging strangers, crying with them all over the country. So to that point, is there a story that kind of stands out in your mind that you heard on that tour that you had through the various towns and trials and tribulations, conversations. Can you share one of those really powerful stories with our listeners? Yeah, I was in Salt Lake City doing a veteran suicide presentation. I was asked to be the speaker for our tour. Great event. And we got done. I noticed it was a guy kind of in the front row that as I was talking, I could really see him into my store and he had tears in his eyes and I figured most people in the audience have somebody they know, like like you, has somebody they know that took their life because it's a suicide presentation. And we were done. He came up to me and we started talking. And I said, so Michael, so what's your story, man? What's your story? And I'll give you a quick Reader's Digest summary here. And this one just stands out. I mean, this guy just looked like me and you. He goes, you know, I was married 20 years. And I was in a very difficult marriage. My wife had bipolar. She has, she's medicated. She's an alcoholic and we were struggling. I was talking to my friends and we had issues in our marriage. It was heading to for a divorce. And so my wife was abusing me verbally. She would throw things at me. And the guy's like, so finally I just drew a line in the sand and I said, okay, you want to divorce me? Let's get divorced. You know, you hate me so much. And like a lot of marriages end that way. So this guy did like a lot of people do. He went and got a lawyer and. They got separated. She was all against it. She went to Facebook. She banned him, all this stuff. They had two daughters. So he meets with his lawyer and he got a condo and he went one day to pick up his two daughters because they were sharing the kids. Once the house, the car's in the front of the driveway and he went in the house and the bedroom door was locked and he knocked on the door and his wife didn't answer. And he thought, well, that's not surprising. She over-medicates. She's probably passed out or sleeping. So he left and came back a couple hours with his, he was a little concerned. So he brought his brother with him. And the car was still there. They went in the house, knocked on the door. Bedroom door didn't open again. He told his brother, I don't want to go in there. So his brother knocked the door down and she had shot both daughters and killed herself. Oh my God. Tell me about it. And my hair standing up right now on my arm. And he's sitting there now looking at me. Tears are just filled up his eyes. Something like a separation or a divorce that, that millions of people do ended so tragically and he's now remarried. He struggles. He goes to the therapy. He doesn't drink. He did remarry. He didn't take his own life. He's got other kids. He's got stepkids now. He's taking the better road. And I tell you, man, I just hugged that guy and I just squeezed the life out of him. I'm like, man, 
this is why I had to go on tour. This is the reason why I did this with my boys. Well, what a life experience for my two boys to go around and hear these stories. So now when I see Larry Sprung, I don't see what everyone else sees. I see a story. Right. I think that's how we get out of this mess, man. I think we all need to say, you know what? You may have more money than me. You may have a bigger presence. You may have this great following on social media. But so did Anthony Bourdain. So did Kate Spade. So did Robin Williams. Listen, I agree with you. I think that telling these stories and sharing the experiences are really a a pathway to getting out of this. And I will tell you, being in this kind of environment for 18 years, we lost my brother-in-law September of 2004. I've seen the conversation shift quite a bit. You know, in 2004, these conversations weren't happening at all. And these stories weren't being listened to at all. And now they are. But do you think it's making a difference, Larry? Because here's, I agree with you. I, I love the fact that we can talk about suicide publicly and people can, but the numbers, the data is not justifying that this stuff's working. That to me is like almost a, self-fulfilling prophecy. If you talk about something, even with good intentions, it almost can backfire. So I'm like really perplexed. It's like, what can we do as a society with these issues with social media and our lack of attention today, our lack of focus? What can we do as a society to get these numbers to go in the right direction? Well, I do know this. I do know that the numbers for 2020, which came out in November 2021, actually showed a decline in the suicide rate for the first time. Yeah, and suicide. The life expectancy declined as well. Yeah, I think that had a lot to do with the COVID pandemic and 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 illness there and overdoses. So I I can't speak to the overdoses. That I'm not really... Well, those are triple. I haven't stayed on top. Yeah, it's a struggle. Mental health, I think, is a big component of it. And listen, you always want more headway than you're getting, right? But I have to be hopeful that I think if we share these stories, and and I've seen this through my own, just my own personal connections. By sharing these stories, more people are coming out and having these conversations, which has allowed people to start feeling more comfortable about at least seeking treatment, help, guidance. So at least we're getting a little bit of movement there. I mean, things never go as fast as you want them to. I look back, I lost my mom. My mom passed away in 1997 to breast cancer. And back then, the treatments, the knowledge behind it, it was really the dark ages. And now, you know, if somebody's diagnosed today with breast cancer, there's a very high likelihood that they're going to be cured and come out the other side. And I think that mental health, which is contributors to each of these areas we're talking about, drugs, alcohol, suicide, I think it's a contributing factor. I think that that's in those early stages. We're in the 1997 of mental health compared to breast cancer. So hopefully we're making progress and hopefully we're on the upswing and not on a uh, flatter line or a downswing. But time will tell. I completely agree. And I just wrote something that I'll be posting shortly called the mental health whack-a-mole dilemma. And what that is, is the game of whack-a-mole. You know, you got the got the hammer and the mo- and we go after depression and all of a sudden anxiety goes up. We go after anxiety and then alcoholism goes up. And then we then that person has suicidal ideation. Then they're taking medicines and then they're 100 pounds overweight and they can't make their rent payment. It's like there's all these things moving simultaneously. And so mental health is like the wheel and all these individual things are the spoke. What I'm trying to do is take that approach that 
we need to come up with ways that we can work on all these things simultaneously. Because if I quit drinking, that's great. But like I said, if I can't make my rent payment, that's stressful. It's going to hinder your mental health. Right. So, but if I can make my rent payment, but I'm 150 pounds overweight, I got high cholesterol and diabetes because of my diet, then that's a problem. So it's like this game of whack-a-mole to me is always stuck in my head that we chase things like right now, there's this big thing on eradicating fentanyl, make it a weapon of mass destruction. I think reality, first of all, the drug cartels are multi-billion dollar businesses. And to say like, let's just build a higher border wall to keep fentanyl from coming in from Mexico. People don't understand how this works. They don't understand what a precursor chemical is and that China's legally selling these. They're not illegally selling these. Fentanyl's not being made in China. The chemicals are. The drug cartels are buying it. Even people are buying it here in the United States, the chemicals, and then making their own synthetic opioids like fentanyl. So for me, it's been a massive learning experience on what I assumed were certain issues or ways that we could deal with these issues. So I'm really trying to keep a very open mind as I go down this road of being a mental health advocate. At the end of the day, I think you and I are both just tired of people dying. And I'm tired of people having miserable lives. I mean, there's no reason. we. You would agree with this, I'm sure, Larry, that in the history of humans, we've never been more connected, right? I mean, you and I can communicate on 10 different modes. I can look at the weather in Siberia right now. And yet I feel we're the most disconnected as humans we've ever been in the history of mankind. That's an odd dynamic because we keep adding more, but we keep feeling less. And especially kids today. I agree. I agree. And that leads me into one thing that I wanted to talk about is being a parent, right? What advice do you have for parents who may be facing a child battling drug or alcohol addiction? Are there things that if I'm a parent that I have a child that's in that space, that's in that environment that I should be doing to help my kids? I mean, ultimately, it may not work. In every case, but are there things that I should be cognizant about that would make sense for me to uh, implement or try? It's probably the greatest question someone could ask me, and I get that asked all the time, and it's unanswerable because there's a fine line between tough love and enabling, and I struggled with that. You know, I gave my son money. I bought him an apartment. I bought him a car, bailed him out of jail, visited him in prison. I did all the things I should have done as a dad, yet he died. My wife, same thing, took her to rehab, emergency room, overdosing, tried to listen. I'm sure there's things I didn't do very well as a husband. There's no manual for this, by the and way. And yet she's not here. So rock bottom for some people is looking in the mirror like I did in Florida. And I knew that that was my rock bottom. Others is death. I don't know. That's a great question. I would say if I had to use the benefit of hindsight, being able to listen and really listen and not lecture is probably the best place to start. When I say listen, I, I really mean that. I mean, don't talk. Understand exactly where your son or daughter is coming from. Understand the pressures they have with with imposter syndrome and gaslighting and all these things. You know, you know, Larry, I tell you what, man, I hate to say this because it's going to scare people. But the DEA said the other day that there's eighty to 90,000 drug dealers on Snapchat alone. So you could be doing all the right things as a parent. And your kid's sitting in the down the hallway on their computer on Snapchat playing games with their friends. And drug dealers are, are infiltrating their chat rooms and getting into conversations. And they think they're other kids. The numbers of 12, 13, 14-year-old kids overdosing on Percocet and Adderall, that, that's not what they thought they bought online, is staggering. It's the new dynamic in this space. So the goalposts are shifting mid-game. 
And that's what this is the toughest time to be a parent. I, I don't think there's any time in history has been harder to be a parent right now. If I had little kids right now, boy, I would be doing everything in my power. When they come and they want to talk to you, put your darn phone down, shut the TV off, stop drinking around them, stop doing the unhealthy habits around them, get them to focus on their diet, get them to focus on communication, not full of sugar and not full of anxiety and depression. It's like, this is a tough time. It's a, it's a very tough time. And that's, this is where my, I'm zeroing in now is living undeterred is really growing. We want to focus on behavior not changing the behavior of kids because we want to get to them before they've really developed these behaviors intervene before the intervention, as I like to say, but it's a tough time to be a parent. I really, my heart goes out to couples that post pictures and they got three or four little kids. And I think in myself, man, I, I just don't think they realize the road they had. They had the train wreck coming, the mental health train wreck coming. Well, you know? hopefully they can get in front of that train, so to speak. Yeah, and, and I do. And that's why I want to do every day. And that's what you're doing too, Larry's being advocates and trying to get these parents armed with the correct with plenty of tools they can go to so they don't have to do what I did and sit there and look at the phone and not not know who to call. Yeah. And I think you gave some good actionable takeaways for parents to to utilize because I think all those are important. Have those conversations, pay attention, don't be distracted, don't do things that you don't expect or want them to do. Don't do it openly and in front of them because they're sponges. They're taking everything in. So listen, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Jeff, and we end every show. We're going to make a little bit of shift here, right? We want to talk about joy for a minute because we are the Midland Money Mindset and we ask each of our guests the same last question, which is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? The same thing I do every single day, 20 minutes of meditation. First thing I do, I get out of bed. I don't look at my phone. I don't even make my bed. I go right to my meditation chair. To me, it's like breathing. I don't skip it. I added 10 minutes after I had my brush with suicide over Christmas because I got concerned. So I do 20 minutes every morning that I'm not, that's not negotiable. Awesome. I've tried to do it. I have not been able to implement it, but I'm continuing to work towards that. So uh, I'll use you as motivation and I'll try to add a few more minutes and see if I can get that under my belt. But I think that's a great way. Now, we're going to have all of your information in the show notes, but if people want to find you, connect with you, learn more about living undeterred, what's the easiest and best place for them to do that? You can go to livingundeterred.org or you could email me, Jeff, at livingundeterred.org. I take phone calls. My number is 319-899-3400. Text. I'm doing this the rest of my life. This is all I do. And I will tell you right now, 56 years old, Larry, I'm at the best place I've ever been in my life, emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially. And But it takes a lot of work, daily, daily work. But you can get there no matter what you've been through. The last quote I'll leave you with, I kind of stole this from Viktor Frankl, pain is unavoidable, but suffering is a choice. So you can't fight pain, but you certainly can mitigate the suffering. There's ways around that. I love that, Jeff. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate you. I appreciate your time and make it a great day. You as well, brother. Take care. I want to thank Jeffrey Johnston for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. In the moments following the loss of his son, Seth, Jeff had a decision to make. Jeff made the conscious decision to take the tragic events in his life and use it to help himself and others too. The passion that Jeff has for helping others can be found in all that he does. He truly exemplifies the fact that purpose becomes passion when it becomes personal. 
Jeff and Living Undeterred can be found across most social media platforms, and all the contact information needed to find them can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.